welcome to the Oncology Soundbite, a podcast produced by the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, designed to offer bite-sized, audible oncology education from one of the top cancer treatment centers in the nation. I'm your host, Amy Martin, a senior physician liaison at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Lucas, who's a medical oncologist and serves as the medical director of SCCA Issaquah. Great to have you here, Dr. Lucas. As usual, great to be here, Amy. Fantastic. And we're so glad to have you represent our community oncologists and really engage in clinical dialogue with our guests. And speaking of guests, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mohammed Saror, Associate Professor and Physician at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and University of Washington, who specializes in blood and marrow stem cell transplantation and cellular therapies. He's here to discuss BMT specifically in older patients. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to have you, and I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to Dr. Lucas, who can take it from here and ask our first question. Yeah, Dr. Soror, thank you so much for being here. It's a real pleasure to interview you. You know, I was just wondering first, you've had an amazing journey in your life to come here to be able to practice what you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you found your way into medicine? Absolutely. Well, my father was diagnosed was one of the common blood cancers, which is non-Hodgkin lymphoma, when I was in the early years of my childhood. And I kind of witnessed through my childhood his struggle with treatment, and then the, the final outcome, he passed away when I was six years old because of the cancer. And I think that kind of inspired me to subconsciously, could say, pursue a career in medicine and specifically in oncology. And interestingly enough, I ended up specializing in stem cell transplant, which is probably the only curative treatment for many types of blood cancer. And because I'm also very interested in what else can be done above and beyond current practice, I naturally became interested in research because I think that's the gate to improve, to continually improve our outcomes of patients. And Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center is one of the pioneer centers in research about transplant, about stem cell transplant. And that's why I was motivated to take that journey from my country of birth, Egypt, and travel and establish my career here at the Fred Hutchinson about 19 years ago. Just about the time that the first Nobel laureate was doing all his work. Well, maybe a little bit before then. That is an amazing story. I can tell you that I feel the same way about my journey into medicine, too, because my father was diagnosed with a total of three separate cancers. So I appreciate the story, and I'm sure that loss still resonates for you. How do you think, though, that you've seen changes take place in transplantation. How do you think those have affected patients? Because I know from my standpoint as a medical oncologist that we always think of patients over about 65 as too old for transplantation, but clearly you and your research has been sort of turning that on its, on its head to some degree, which has been really one of the great things that you've done. Yes, so I think, first of all, we have to give credit to many of my colleagues and some of them who started in this career way before me, where the transplant field has moved to what's called mini-transplant or less toxic transplant that can potentially be tolerated by older patients. 
And that kind of opened the gate for myself to build a career about how to best understand the risks of transplant for the older population, given that up till late 90s, transplant was not an offer for them. So one of the main things over time that we we try to develop and understand is how to measure risk, is how to understand how each patient is different when it comes to a procedure like stem cell transplant. What are the specific factors related to each patient that can shape the the tolerability, the risk, how the patient will do with the transplant? And that started by developing the first model actually in the transplant, in the stem cell transplant field that can take the patient history and clinical status and all the medical problems that the patient might have faced before and try to put it in a model that gives numbers and these numbers translate into risks and just tell the physician and the patient as well, here is the expectation from transplant based on your history, based on things related to your health and what we call it the other medical problems other than cancer. And based on that model, you can tell a patient that, well, transplant seems to be really safe because the expectations are really good of that outcome. Or you can tell a different patient that we think transplant might be a risk, but we can do additional things to help you tolerate the transplant. Or you can tell another patient, maybe transplant actually is too much of a risk and other treatments could be better. Uh, I think developing that model, which came up to in 2005, have changed practice dramatically across the globe, worldwide, because it, it has been adopted by transplant centers in many countries, and physicians use it regularly to evaluate risks of patients before they go to transplant. And because of that, now we kind of have more confidence about uh, what to expect when we're offering transplant to older patients. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that's, to me, what struck me about your work that I thought was really outstanding is before it was always just a bit of a thumbnail sketch. You'd say over 65, maybe with a couple of comorbidities. I don't think that's good. But as we all know, with physicians, it's like herding cats, right? Everybody's got a different opinion and a different take on an individual. And so these sets of rules effectively that were put together kind of codify a list of things that are important versus of things that are not so important and are able to give both physicians, the team, and maybe most importantly, the patient, a good sense of what their chances are if they decide to embark on that kind of journey. Yes, absolutely. Try to use more objective information, more unified objective information that we can assess all patients based on them. Exactly, exactly. And so what we're thinking, or what comes out of your research now, is that you know, as I said before, historically over 65 was going to be difficult. Do you feel like you have any top end age limit for a patient these days? I try to advocate for the idea that age is just a number because Mm -hmm. over the past two decades, what we've learned is there could be patients that above 65, above 70 or even above 75 years old who might do actually as good as younger patients or even better. Because their biologic age, their physical age is actually young. On numbers, they may count 60 or 70 years old, but physically, they perform and present themselves at younger and healthier patients. So advocating more for the idea of use these objective measures to calculate 
the biologic age of, the, of a patient. And, and because of that, I think the oldest patient that I've seen in the clinic and recommended transplant was a 79 years old. Now, these are ex- wow. exceptions. There, there are older patients who transplant is not a good option for them because we know from uh, natural history of diseases that as people get older, they're more likely to pick up other medical problems. But there are these exceptions. There are these patients who their only problem is cancer or their only problem is cancer and something else. And these patients tend to do way better than patients who have, in addition to cancer, multiple other medical problems that affect their heart, their lungs, their liver, their kidneys, or other organs. They could be young. They could be in their 40s. But these medical problems play a big role in how they will tolerate the transplant or how successful the transplant will be like. So to answer your question, now when we see patients above 65, we evaluate their medical problems. We now actually are doing more research to expand our knowledge. So it's not just the medical problems, but we look at other things, such as how about their psychological health, if they have Mm. depression? How about their physical health? Are they able to manage activities of daily living on their own or they need some help? How much walking they are doing during the day? how fast they walk, what's called gait speed, which is one of the most effective objective tests to measure life expectancy, believe it or not, is how fast naturally people walk can get a lot of information about life expectancy and about health. So since the time when we developed and published this new model, the comorbidity index in 2005 until now, we have added way more information that incre- that's kind of a wealth of information about how to better assess older patients for transplant. And I would say that we here at the Fred Hutch, we took the lead in developing these, these mechanisms and systems and using them in assessment of risks and health. Very impressive. Very impressive. And so if you had to look at one measure only, would it be gait speed in terms of a, a patient being able to tolerate a transplant at an elderly age? Would that be the biggest measure? I would say, yes, gait speed would be one of the very critical tools to assess older patients before any treatment for cancer and specifically for stem cell transplant. But the comorbidity index comes almost hand in hand with gait speed because they kind of cover two aspects of health. The comorbidity index kind of asks the question about what other medical problems the patient has, while the gait speed is kind of assessing the physical performance of a patient. Mm. And the physical performance of a patient could be affected by cancer, could be affected by medical problems, could be affected by conditioning, how active the patient is, could be affected by other factors. Sometimes even psychological health could affect gait speed. So these two elements, I think the two most important, I'm not undermining the other factors too that we look at, but I would say yes, these two elements are the most important in giving wealth of information about patient health and expectations of treatment. Well, it'd be interesting to look as a medical oncologist on whether or not gait speed or the comorbidity index would be useful in solid tumors as well. My presumption is that it would. I think that's a very good question. And one of the ideas that I had in my mind is how to reach to my colleagues in solid cancer and how to uh, establish the same research that we've been doing in stem cell transplant for blood cancer to establish the same thing for solid cancer, because I think it would be quite, quite informative, especially now that we have 
the chimeric antigen receptor therapy or what's called CAR T-cell cellular therapy that's actually offered to not only blood cancer patients but also patients with solid cancer. And one of the new projects that I'm starting to work on is how to take some of these measures and apply them to this new cellular therapy, what's called CAR T-cell, offered to solid cancer or blood cancer and how to use it in order to inform the physicians and the patients about the expected risks. Well, that'll be fascinating to see how that plays out in the future. What um, what do you see as the most exciting thing on the horizon for you now? Is it the CAR T-cell therapy in terms of your research, or is there some other, or potentially how immunotherapy affects transplantation these days? Well, I think immunotherapy and CAR T-cell is a very exciting field because it brings in the idea of potential cure, but maybe uh, with less toxicities that the transplant might cause on the long term because the CAR T-cells are basically coming out, the immunotherapy is basically coming from the patient to the patient himself or herself, while the stem cell transplant for most of the, or many of the blood cancer type comes from a different donor and there is a different immune system. So mm. I think the CAR T-cell is one of the exciting new area to investigate and also think about using it in combination with a transplant because sometimes especially with patients who have very aggressive cancer and hasn't responded to many treatments before. One of the ideas is how to use CAR T-cell to help control the disease or the cancer to a level where you can offer the stem cell transplant as a salvage treatment. And between both of them, you might reach your best results. That's from the aspect of novel treatment for cancer. For my research, what's really exciting to me is I spent a good amount of my time as a researcher at the Fred Hodge in trying to understand risks, as I just said earlier, in trying to develop models or test models to understand which patients have the highest risk when we offer stem cell transplant. But about a couple of years ago, I actually took this a step further by designing the first of its kind clinical trial that tried to offer interventions to patients who might have a lot of medical problems or might have a slow gait speed, which we call it frailty, how can we offer interventions that actually make them tolerate the transplant maybe as good as the patients who are healthier? And that trial is funded by the National Institute of Health, the National Cancer Institute. And currently we have six institutions enrolling patients in that trial. And Fred Hutch is the lead center for that trial. And what we're trying to do here is we take every patient who could be 65 years or above, or patients who have multiple medical problems, or patients who have slow gait speed, and we randomize them, which means we flip a coin and we put them into one of different interventions. One of them is to try to use palliative care before and after transplant as an additional level of support supportive care to help manage their symptoms, to help manage the difficulties they go through uh, transplant given that the higher risk patients. The second intervention, we look at what other medical problems they have. They could have a heart disease, for example. And in that case, we work closely with our cardiologists to build a program of exercise, program of a strength training, diet, other details that's specific for these patients with heart disease. And the same thing for a patient who might have lung disease or might have liver disease. We have a specific program for them 
that's delivered in a form of a booklet and sometimes tapes. So the patient will take that to where he's staying. And while he's receiving transplant at the SCCA, we'll be reading our booklet, we'll be doing the exercises, we'll be applying the rules about diet that's specific for his health. And our goal of this is make them tolerate transplant better, make their quality of life better, make them live longer because we make them more resilient to transplant. Wow. And that'll be very impressive. It's nice to see a little cross-pollination between the solid tumor world in terms of palliative care, how that helped extend lives with patients with stage four lung cancer in the Temel and Tom Lynch study from 2012, I believe. And now that's coming back to or going to the stem cell world. And it makes perfect sense to me that if you can enhance all these other aspects of a patient's life, that they can manage to get through such a major intervention as a bone marrow transplantation. Absolutely. I think you really bring up a good point that this has been explored in lung cancer patients before while they're receiving their chemotherapy and has shown improvement in survival and quality of life. Stem cell transplant is a procedure that put a lot of demands on patients early on. And I think, I do believe that palliative care support eventually could be a part of standard of care depending on the results of our trial. I might have missed to say that one arm used palliative care, one arm use the management of medical problems. The third arm is a combined arm. We offer palliative care support as well as the management of medical problems. And I think if you do these two things together, you might reach actually the best, the best results. Yeah, that's what I would expect as well. It's impressive to me that you've got a total of six centers on this because I think this sounds like a giant study and a lot of effort. Yes, it actually required a lot of effort to put these centers together and coordinate that trial. We continue to invite other colleagues to join us. We're still at the beginning of the trial, and we might expand the number of centers where we offer this trial. And I think that's also good for the trial because you then get the diversity of different types of patients. So when you finish the trial and you come up with a conclusion at the end, you kind of feel confident that conclusion would apply at other centers in the nation because you had a number of centers from different states, from different metropolitan areas that makes good representation of different types of patients. So I'm really excited that my colleagues are enthusiastic about this study and that they are opening this trial at their centers. I think it, it adds a lot to that benefit of the trial at the end. Well, I can tell you that I'm not doing any transplantations, but I'm enthusiastic about the trial as well. <laughs> I remember what a game changer that, you know, Temel Tom Lynch study was in terms of how my colleagues who were in oncology looked at palliative care. I think many people were, well, yeah, we can do this. It's not that big a deal. But I think the realization of how much time that added on to a person's life was that we need professional palliative care experts who were going to be involved and involved quite heavily, more than just an oncologist would be. Absolutely. I think the more supportive care you provide, the better. We actually use a specific model called the NEST 13, which actually we give it to the patient and it has 13 questions. It asks the patient, what is the most pressing problem you have that week? And then we take the patient answer, we give it to the palliative care specialist. So when the palliative care specialist walks into the room or calls the patient to discuss, then they will really be focusing on the problems that's most pressing to the patient at that week. 
So it's really very individualized form of intervention where we're trying to respond to the patient needs and provide the care that could help them go through that process more successfully. Wow. Very impressive. What other sites are actually doing this incredibly important work? So we have that trial open at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Stanford University, Mayo Clinic, University of Minnesota, and Carmenus Center. And those are the current sites that joined the trial. And we continue to reach to other collaborators on the East Coast and the Midwest to see if others will be interested in joining us. And I would think I would think by the end of this year, we might shape our trial into maybe up to 10 or 12 centers. Excellent. And, and with that in mind, when do you think the readout might be? Two, three, four years from now? That's the interesting thing about the design of this trial. We design it as two phases trial. So in the first phase, which takes about half of the patient required, so the trial required about 600 patients to be enrolled from any number of centers. The first 300 patients is in a phase two study that asks which of the three intervention arms is better than standard of care that we're currently doing. So we will know some information halfway through from that phase two that will probably determine one of those interventions is doing better than everything else. And then the phase three, which has another 300, we will ask now a definitive question. That intervention arm that we selected from the phase two, how good it is compared to standard of care. So Mm. after half of the trial, after we enroll half of the patients through the trial, we will get some information that we will publish and we tell the community that we actually found one of those interventions on to be suggestively better. And I'm expecting, if you ask me about timing, I'm expecting sometime next year in 2022, we might be able to publish these early results. And the definitive answer will be about two years after that, will we get the results of the second phase of the trial. Well, that is amazingly fast, too. I mean, we are on the cusp, then, of potentially some game-changing information in transplantation. Yes, I think so. And then from the aspect, there is another trial from the aspect of risk assessment. I'm doing another large trial with the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trial Network, which is a national network that has 52 centers. We're doing a large trial. I'm the co-chair where we're trying to take the comorbidity index that was developed here in the Fred Hutch in 2005 and add the other factors that we found to be important, try to expand it and make it a larger predictive model. So gait speed, for example, is one of the, there are 13 factors that we're adding to the comorbidity index. Gait speed is one of them. And we call that model the charm. And we think that the charm model that probably we will get uh, results next year will give older patients, any older patients 65 years or above, will give very definitive information about the risks. So that's another exciting clinical trial that probably will get some results soon. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on when essentially the phase two data comes out. That'll be interesting. Yes. And actually, next year would be perfect because we will have the observational trial for the new risk model probably published, and then hopefully the phase two of the intervention trial published. There will be two 
two good pieces of information to share as an update that would be really interesting for a lot of older patients. Yeah, and I think this is also important, you know, for people who are referring into SCCA. Things are changing a lot in terms of who we can transplant these days. And I think this is all really germane information that sometimes just doesn't trickle down to the docs in the field. So it's be good to, to do something like this. Yeah, one of the papers that we're trying to publish, it will actually come out in a few days. If you look at the percentage of the patients, for example, with acute myeloid leukemia getting a transplant in population studies, it's actually less than 10%. So that community mm. physicians are keeping the majority of patients away from transplant, thinking right. that they cannot tolerate it. So by the research we're trying to do, I mean, the publications do address a lot, but not everybody reads these publications. And I think that's where ways of reach like this could have more impact in delivering the story that there is a lot to learn by referring a patient to a center like this, where they can get a better chance of assessment of the risk. Nowadays, we do many of our consults virtually. So it's really not a burden for a patient who who lives far away from SCCA to be referred for a consult and talk to a transplant physician and evaluate the risks and talk about this transplant, the treatment for them or not. I think that's why it's, it's actually more than any time we should ask for at least the patient be seen by a transplant physician in a virtual consult or an in-person consult to understand if transplant is the way for treatment or not. Well, all of this has been really exciting. I think we're just about out of time. And unless you have anything else, Dr. Sora, to uh, turn it back to Amy and she can wrap it up with some information about how to get hold of you in case some physicians or patients who were in the Washington area or outside of that would like to get hold of you. Well, it's been my pleasure and I'm always happy to provide any feedback, physicians or patients. Thank you so much. Thank you to my co-host, Dr. Lucas, and to Dr. Soror for joining us today. Such a really insightful conversation and also a lot of promise in this field. So thank you for, for sharing so openly. And also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Oncology Soundbite. And to hear more and uh, subscribe to the Oncology Soundbite in your favorite podcast app and to receive updates on our future podcast episodes, along with other news out of SCCA, you can go to seattlecca.org slash provider blog and click subscribe for more news from SCCA. But until next time, thank you for listening and take good care.